Thank you, Stephen, for reading. Uh, it's handy to have that little Bible verse or Bible passage in front of you because we're going to refer to it uh, backwards and forwards today. Again, if this is your first time with us at Foundation Church, you are very welcome. It's great to see you. Um, over the last few weeks as a church, we've been looking through this little section at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Uh, and the title of the, the, the whole series is called Status Update. And the reason why we've called it Status Update is because this whole section in the Bible is, is Jesus who has risen from the dead. He's ascended to heaven and he appears to one of the apostles in a, in a vision and he gives some information and some warnings and some encouragement, all that kind of stuff, to these seven churches. And they form the messages that we see in, in, in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, seven real-life churches. And Jesus has good things to say to some of them. He has uh, uh, bad things to say to some of them, which comes as a big surprise to them. Actually, we saw that last week. Uh, but to every church, whether they are good, whether the status update is good, whether the status update is bad, you know, and they've got a lot of work to do, for every church and for every person in every church, no matter if good or bad, what they've done, what they haven't done, there is grace available. There is love available to them so that they may receive the love of God and come back to him. And so we saw that last week as we looked at the church in Ephesus, which is at the beginning of chapter 2. And so we're ne at the next stage now, another church at the beginning, sorry, halfway through chapter 2 called Smyrna, um, which is another place in Turkey. Uh, Asia Minor was the old name for this, this region of the world. Uh, it's not called that anymore, but it's generally speaking modern-day Turkey. Most of these cities and churches that we'll read about are no more. You can't go there. You might find a few bricks because they've all been knocked down over the centuries. But this one town you can go to, the town of Smyrna. It's not called Smyrna anymore. It's called Izmir. And it's located in Turkey, but it's still in, in existence. It's a very ancient city. And so parts of the original Smyrna that we read about very briefly here, you can actually go and see and touch and, and walk around. Anyway, we have here a little group of Christians in this town called Smyrna. They're a small church, historians tell us. Um, but the city itself was pretty large. It was the second most important city in all of Asia Minor behind Ephesus. We saw that last week. And there's a large Jewish population also in the city. And that's important to know because they sort of come in a bit later on. There's a section of that Jewish population that is giving the church a hard time. And again, as we saw last week and even the week before, uh, Jesus gives a revelation to God in a vision, sorry, to John in a vision by uh, an angel, an angelic messenger to the church. So we've got God giving a revelation to Jesus Christ, who gives this revelation of himself to John through the angel. All right? And so that is reminded to us at the start of each message. So let's have a quick look then at the way that Jesus, who appears around these the lampstands, it says at the end of verse chapter 1, uh, lampstands represent the church, and there's Jesus, kind of like this, walking around the lampstands, looking at them, examining them, and giving the status update. So he does that for the church at Smyrna as well. What does he say? Look down with me at verse 9. Jesus says to the church, I know your tribulation, that is their afflictions, their hard times, doesn't qualify what that means, 
But I know the tribulations. I know, he says, your poverty. Most likely they're just financially poor, materially poor. And I know, he says, the slander of those that say they're Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. I know that these religious opponents have been painting you in a bad picture, he says. I know that they've been telling lies about you, lies to the general community, maybe lies to the Roman authorities, painting the church, the Christians, in a very bad light. And Jesus says, I know what's going on. I can see it all. I can see, he says, that you're up against it. I can see that you're struggling because of your faith in me. We don't exactly know what it was like on the ground for this little church in Smyrna, what was really happening to them, but we do know that they were suffering because they were Christians. Um, we, can, we can just, you know, have a few educated guesses what that might look like for them. It was likely that they were excluded from, from commerce, from the marketplace. It was likely that those who were Christians in the church were unable to do trade with other people in the city because of their faith. It was likely that they couldn't buy stuff as easily as possible because of their Christian faith that people would refuse to sell to them. They were, they were ostracized, they were sort of kicked out, if you like, of the, the overall community of the city, made to feel like outsiders, like they didn't belong. Not only that, but add to that then the lies that were being told about them, the harassment of these religious authorities, these religious bigots. Just imagine for a moment if you're sat here and, and, and we're sat here as Foundation Church and to a man and a woman, all of us, all of us have no money in the bank, we're in debt. Very few of us have any food on the table. We're finding it difficult to have one meal a day, let alone three. We find it hard to pay the bills because we have no money in the bank. No one's paying us for our work. Imagine that's the experience of all of us. And that's only the case because of our faith in Jesus, because we're meeting together today, every Sunday, and talking about Jesus. That's the only reason why they're going through this tough time. But that's what it's like at the moment. That's what it's like currently for the church in Smyrna, in verse 9. But it seems to kind of get worse, actually. Look down at verse 10, because Jesus says, you know, this, this is kind of bad for you at the moment. This is what's happening. I can see all that stuff. But he says, look at verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So I know it's bad already, says Jesus, and you're struggling and suffering because of your faith in me. But actually, for, for, for many of you, it's about to get worse. Some of you are going to get thrown in prison for your faith for, for 10 days. We don't know if that's metaphorical 10 days. That means like a... You know, a set period of time with an end in sight, whether it's actually 10 days, we don't, we don't know. The book of Revelation uses numbers in slightly different ways, you see. But anyway, for a set period of time, some of you are going to get thrown in. There's going to be more tribulation for you. There's going to be more hardships and trials. It's getting worse. And it's hard for us, isn't it, sometimes, sitting here today. Um, I, I don't know everybody. I don't know your background. I don't know what's happened to you in life. But by and large, this is a generalization, by and large, we are in a fairly well-off, affluent part of the world, the West, as it's so-called. And it's hard for us to look and, and, and see 
this and, and really experience what it's like. You know, the, these Christians who are, are, are struggling. And we, we might feel pity for them uh, in, in, in our minds and, and think, oh, how terrible it must be to be like that. But that's really not our own experience. But as, as you become more familiar with the Bible, particularly the New Testament, you realize that this is a very, very familiar pattern for Christians in general, judging by the New Testament. In fact, I would go as far as saying that in the New Testament, this seems to be normal for believers to suffer and struggle for their faith in Jesus. We saw this in our series that we finished a few weeks ago in the book of Philippians. Um, the Pursuit of Joy, we called it. It's a book about joy, but it's a book written by, or a letter written by the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, who was in prison. He was in prison for his faith, for preaching the good news of Jesus. And so we saw that that was normal for him in our last series. We, we, we see even in this series here, the guy who's writing this book here, John, the Apostle John, he says, I am your brother, this is to the church, and your partner in the tribulation. He says, I'm here uh, on the island of Patmos. He was, he was exiled because of his faith, away from the main cities, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we have Paul, and we have John, and we have even Jesus himself, the, the, our, our Saviour and Lord who stands at the centre of our faith. He himself knows what it is like to suffer for the truth. When you read the, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see that Jesus was misunderstood almost at every turning. He was spoken of badly behind his back. He was slandered. People told lies about him to get him in trouble, dob him in uh, with, with the authorities. He was a man who lived in poverty. He said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was probably homeless for a period of time at the very least. He was falsely accused. He was harassed by the religious bigots. So in terms of the Christian faith in general, suffering because of Jesus is to be considered fairly normal. In fact, this is a bit of a, a side bar, but if you look at the words of Jesus in Mark 8 verse 34, Jesus says this. He says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. See, Jesus doesn't just invite a life of suffering in general. He says to his followers, anyone that will come after him, take up your cross. So we could say that the Christian life is cross-shaped. Not suffering in general, but suffering in a similar way to Christ and how he suffers. Take up your cross. And for many Christians, as we were praying for earlier on, this is a present reality. Actually, right now, at this moment, as we are preaching about this stuff, people are suffering for their faith. We heard of the 173 Eritrean prisoners of faith. These are just the ones that are known about, by the way. There could be many, many more. There's the converts from Islam to Christianity that my friend who's ministering in Morocco, in North Africa, sees and sees how they lose their employment and they lose their family and they get kicked out of their community because they adopt faith in Christ. Many countries, too many to mention this evening. Suffice to say, if I was preaching this sermon out in North Africa or in East Africa someplace, this would be a very different type of sermon. But let's not think for a second that just because we don't live in these countries that there is no such thing as persecution today in the 21st century here in, in Belfast. 
The thing is, there is persecution. It's just different to how we see it in, in, the, in these other stories that we hear from other parts of the world. The persecution that you and I are likely to have um, is less overt. You know, it's less obvious than that kind of thing being put in prison straight away. But it's on the rise. Persecution against Christians in the West is on the rise. We live in a culture and a society that has less and less Christian values as we go along. And quite often Christians, I don't know if you've noticed in the, in the media or if you watch movies and there's a Christian person there, either a vicar or somebody like that, Christians are often mocked in the, the mainstream news and the media. If you see a, a vicar or a Christian uh, person in a film or a TV show, they're often idiots, they're often pre- presented as goofs, you know. Um, they're often presented as uh, bigots or they're presented as evil and they've got a, a, you know, another thing they're doing and you know, it's a big crime drama and it's often the, the religious person who's the one to blame. That's the way that Christians get presented and, and that's the way the world thinks sometimes of us. Christians are, are often going to be ridiculed. You may find yourself being taken to court um, for something you've done, uh, whether you're a street evangelist trying to share the good news of Jesus on the street, whether you're a baker, whether you're a healthcare worker. There are numerous stories as we go on of, of people being taken through the law system. There's even a university professor in Canada who was sacked because he refused to use what they call non-binary pronouns to, to describe him or her, he and she. He refused to use more politically correct pronouns and as as such got sacked from his role as a professor in Canada. These are just small things and I suspect that things will just become more and more overt in the next few years as we go on. Maybe you one day will be denied a promotion because you're a Christian. Maybe you'll be denied a trade deal because you're seen as being a Christian. Maybe you won't get a job or you'll get sacked because of your so-called unacceptable views on the traditional biblical teaching of marriage and sexuality and that kind of thing. Perhaps it'll be even closer to home for you. Maybe if you stand up for Jesus and live as a Christian, you are going to get abuse and mockery and hurtful words thrown at you from those closest to you. Maybe in your, your family, friends, colleagues. It might be a bit of light-hearted fun or whatever, but sometimes it drives deep, deeper than that. Maybe there's real aggression or anger towards you for your faith. So what should we do if we're in this situation, persecuted in, in various forms? Should we just give in and, and go with the flow? Stop talking about Jesus so much and just kind of bury it down? Well, let's turn back again to the words of Scripture to find out what Jesus says to the church that are being persecuted in whichever form it is. We've seen the facts already. We've seen that this stuff is already happening, that the the church in Smyrna is being uh, under tribulation and affliction and hardships, all that stuff. That's the facts. But what does Jesus say about those facts? What does he actually do about it? Well, it seems to be, as you read through, that Jesus not only says how bad things are, which isn't very encouraging, really, is it? It's terrible. Your life is terrible. You're you're suffering and it's just going to get worse. That's pretty hard to take. But the reason he says that is because he gives them, the church, the, 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 the interpretation. 
He helps them to understand all these things, how they fit together, how they click together in terms of the big picture. Because you see, according to the church in Smyrna, there are two different ways for them to interpret their suffering and their hardships and their trials. You can either go with the truth as Jesus puts it, to see suffering as Jesus intends, or the church can see their suffering and their hardships and their trials with another narrative, another framework in their minds. And so Jesus here speaks to the church and to you today and us, if you're struggling or suffering, going through hardships, and he gives you the framework through which to see your suffering. Otherwise, if he doesn't do that, if he's not really clear on how this all fits together in the big scheme of things, you and I and everyone else are likely to just go with the, the, the dominant story out there, that you're suffering because of something bad you've done, or your suffering means nothing, or your suffering is just something you have to make do with. There's no real reason for it. But Jesus has a different story to tell you. So let's look at what he says. He says there's two ways to explain what's going on. There's a biblical way, there's a, there's a way that Jesus intends, and then there's the world's intentions. See, before, before we go on, I just want to say, say this to you. Everybody, everybody has a framework in their minds, in the, in, in the way that they see the world and how it fits together. Everyone sat here today. You may not know it, but you do. I can tell you that. And according to Jesus, you can either have a sort of a biblical framework or a framework from, from, from what he says and how he speaks or some other framework from the world, other religions, that kind of thing. But everyone has a framework. Some people call it a worldview, the way you view the world. And often it's just sort of, you don't, you don't, you don't realize it's there. It's something you sort of often inherit, maybe from your upbringing or your, your beliefs, some of the prevailing thought in society, your experiences as a person growing up, some of the assumptions that you make about the world and the way it is. All of this stuff here contributes to your worldview, the framework that you and I and every other person on this planet will use to interpret what's going on. So the question is not, do you have a framework that you think with? But the question is, what is it? Because the answer that you will make to that, and we're going to think through that as we go, go through, the answer that you give to that, I tell you right now, will dictate how you deal with suffering and how you go through trials and how you will see the hard times and the good in your life. It'll either make you or break you. So understanding your framework is pretty important. Okay, park that for a moment. So we have here Jesus speaking to this church, suffering, and he wants to reinforce the framework that he gives from God to them, the way that he sees it. So what does he say? The framework that I want you to think about, says Jesus, begins in verse 8. The words, this is the words of him, who are the first and the last, who died and came to life. This is, this is describing Jesus himself. Jesus is saying to the church, I am the first and the last. That means I came before time began and I will continue after your life ends. I am first and before all things. I am last and over all things. Which just sounds kind of interesting and maybe theological and all that stuff. But to the suffering church who are looking at what's going on and the terrible hardships they're going through, there is something important knowing that Jesus is the first and the last. He's over all that stuff. 
I don't know how it works for you, but for me, I find that I get consumed all too easily by what's going on right in front of me, whether good or bad, hard times and good. I get consumed all too quickly by what's happening. It owns me. And yet Jesus says there is a way to understand it. I am the first and the last. I am above all that, not Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire, not the religious people, the religious hierarchy, not the angry mob that are going to come and cause you harm. But I, I am over all that stuff, not that situation that you are going through just now. Not only am I the first and the last, Jesus says, I died and came to life. This is the centre of the Christian worldview, the Christian framework. We've been singing about it already and talking about it. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross, died a death that we could not die, was risen again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He conquered sin and death and the devil. It says elsewhere he has the keys of death and hell in his hands. He owns them. So he's the first and the last. He died and came to life. And that is why at the beginning of verse 9, he can say to you and to me and to the church, I know your tribulation. He doesn't just know about it because he got a fax up in heaven to inform him about Smyrna. He knows because he's experienced it himself. At the center of the Christian faith is someone who knows what it is like to suffer to have pain inflicted upon him, for how, to have lies told about him, injustice committed against him. He knows what it is like. He's personally experienced it. And see, that gospel, that good news of Jesus is like the center of a tent. It's like the pole at the center of a tent. It holds up everything else that we see and experience and know in life whether it's institutions such as education and law and healthcare and politics, all that stuff, whether it's our culture, whether it's our arts, whether it's our science, whether it's our own personal experience, every facet of human experience can be and should be interpreted by the fact that Jesus was dead and is now alive. And see, if you understand life in that way, if you have that framework that starts and has at the center Jesus and what he has done for you, then you will see your opposition in a different light. Then you will see the lies that the religious authorities tell against Christians and people tell against you as just that, as lies. Then you will see your suffering very differently. Look down, uh, by the way, at verse 10. See, halfway through. Behold, it says, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison. Listen, that you may be tested. See, according to Jesus, the fact that their suffering is only going to get worse for a short amount of time, and that might lead to some of them being imprisoned or worse, he says that is a test. See, if you, if you don't have this sort of Christian, gospel-centered, worldview framework thing, if you don't operate out of that, then to hear that suffering is a test is just bonkers. It is madness.
If you have a different framework other than the one that Jesus is talking about here, then you'll see suffering very differently. You'll, 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 for most people, suffering has no purpose. It has no positive end to it. It's just a brutal fact of life that you just have to grit your teeth and get through it. Doctors' practices and A&E uh, centers and other, other healthcare professions are filled with people who do not have the resources to deal with suffering. They, they, they want a pill, they want drugs to take it away, take the pain away. But in my opinion, they're going to the wrong place. They need to come to the church. And yet how many people come to the church to seek that kind of help? See, if you are a Christian and you have this Christian worldview, this Christian framework with Jesus at the center, then you will see purpose, or you will know there is purpose in your hardships, in your testing. You know, the details of, of each circumstance in our testing may not be known to us at the time. We may never see the effect of it this side of eternity. It's known often to God. But that doesn't mean it's not part of his redemptive plan, part of our sanctification, that is our growth as, as, as believers. That it doesn't mean to say it's not part of something that eventually will turn out for his glory and for our gain. These are promises, by the way, I've just listed off from, from the Bible. It says in verse 10, be faithful unto death. See, they may even die in this test. But he says, do not fear. Why else would that advice to suffering Christians make any sense unless you understand that Jesus was dead and is now alive and has the keys of death and hell in his hands? Why else would it make sense to say, do not fear? Unless someone who knows what he's talking about has been there and done it already. Otherwise, it's just wrong. It's just evil to say, do not fear to someone who's going to go through horrendous suffering. Unless, of course, Jesus is right in what he says. I know, I've been through it. I'm the first and the last. I can see more than you can see right now, says Jesus to the church. There is life beyond life. And so therefore, do not fear. Have hope. If your framework is different to the one Jesus is presenting, then this is utter nonsense. Ridiculous. If you, like so many people in our Western society, believe that this life is all there is, that there's no such thing as a higher power, that that stuff is just fairy tale and myth for people with weak minds, that the purpose of life is just to do the best you can to pass on some money, maybe to your kids, to enjoy life, because this is all... If that is the way that you operate, then this advice that Jesus gives is utter nonsense. But you can see here, can't you, how these two different interpretations are so radically different when they look at the same thing, they look at suffering and hardships and trials. If you follow Christ's assessment in these verses, your life can look very different 
compared to another narrative, another framework, compared to the lies that are being told about you by other people, particularly for your faith in Christ. So the question I want to put to you this evening is this. Which version of reality are you working from? What is your version of truth? What is your system of thought, even if it's subconscious, you've never really thought of it like that? What is the framework that dictates the way you see the world? Someone has said you can catch this framework in the same way that people catch a cold. You just kind of grow into it and possess it somehow. But I want you this evening, and hopefully when you go home, maybe for the rest of this week, to think about this. What is your framework? And as I said earlier on, it's not a question of if you have a worldview or a framework. The question is, what is your worldview or your framework? How's it working for you? Why do you believe what you believe? Is it something you've just inherited or is it something you want to give some serious thought to now we've started to, to talk about it? But what I would say to you is this. Don't you think it's important to understand why you think what you think? To try and work out what your framework is because it drives everything you think and you do and you say. It drives the decisions you make whether the great and the small decisions. It drives the way you spend your money. It, it drives the way that you shape your life and the things you think are important in life. It's crucially important for us here this, this evening to work out and to understand what is that framework? It's not just psychology and philosophy. It's something that has real life implications for you and for me and for everyone else. If you forgive me, I want to get right down to the nitty-gritty right now and be really direct with you. Either the Christian worldview, framework, either that is true and therefore it changes everything, or it is false and it should be rejected as groundless nonsense. Either it is true or it is false. And the only, only way to know the difference between those two questions is ask yourself this. Are the claims that Jesus makes true or false? Is the gospel that we've been singing and talking and praying about, is the gospel correct? Because if Jesus really did die on a cross one day several thousand years ago in Palestine, and rose again on the third day and conquered sin and death and the devil, then we cannot be passive about him. We have to give him our entire allegiance because of what he's done. He is the, the Lord over life and death, if it is true. If it is not true, then this Christian worldview, this Christian way of seeing life is like a tent without a tent pole. It is flat, nonsense, pathetic, pointless. If Christianity is false 
then my advice to you this evening is eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This life is all there is, so have at it. But, but, if Christianity is true, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, then even your suffering has a purpose. Even persecutions that you and I and every other Christian in this world may experience can be seen as worthwhile because Christ has overcome. If Christianity is true, then it presents us with deep resources in our suffering, in our hardships. If it is true, then it gives us power to overcome the worst experiences in human life. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we, Christians, of all people are to be greatly pitied. What are we doing here if Christ did not raise from the, rise from the grave? Everything hangs on this. And in my view, in the view of, I think, lots of other people, the evidence for the gospel not only being helpful but being true is overwhelming. That Jesus really did die on a cross and really did rise to life on the third day. The message of the gospel, as we see, spread across the known world within a generation. That stuff doesn't happen for a fairy tale. The apostles died to defend the good news of Jesus. And countless other Christians since them have died. Did they die for a myth? Did they die for some fairy tale? Did they die because they just sensed the resurrection in their hearts? Absolutely not. My view is they died, and this is the, the balance of Scripture, they died because it's true. Christ really did rise from the grave. Look at the promises in verse 11, 10 and 11, that come to people who accept Jesus and what he's done and the difference that makes in your life. He says, to you who overcome, I will give you, he says at the end of verse, verse 10, the crown of life. Later on, he says in verse 11, the one who conquers, that is the one who successfully overcomes this stuff, will not be hurt by the second death. The second death, by the way, in case you're wondering, is not the death that you and I and every single other human being will experience, even Jesus himself. That's the first death. He's referring here to the death after the death, otherwise known as, as hell or eternity away from, from God. He says, if you overcome, you, 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 you'll have life. You'll be wearing the crown of life, not, not death. See, in the Christian faith, and I'm going to close just by saying this, in the Christian faith, there is a saviour who knows your suffering because he has experienced it in some form himself. We have a saviour who can protect you by his power, who can equip you with his spirit, who can deliver you from all of harm because he has gone through death himself and come up from the grave. What about you tonight? Do you have that hope that Jesus is offering here in, in the Bible? That hope of the crown of life? Do you have that peace that comes from knowing that Christ is victorious?
come to Christ. Embrace him by faith and allow him to transform you from inside out by his spirit. Allow him to interpret your life for you according to the one who has tasted death on your behalf and has emerged victorious to life in abundance. Come to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray for help in understanding these words from the Bible. We pray that you would give us the power to receive them, to receive Christ, to trust him. We pray for your ongoing work of your Holy Spirit in us. Help us to have that hope and that peace that comes through faith in Christ. Help us to see our lives as you reveal it in the Bible. Not as the world would falsely try and convince us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did on our behalf. And we pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.